Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? From the book of the prophet Isaiah, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You and I are going to die. We spend a lot of time trying to ignore this basic fact. We don't want to see death, animal or human. When we're forced to talk about death, we prefer euphemisms. And even when death confronts us in undeniable ways, as it has for many of us, here today, we sometimes continue to treat it like it's something we can control. We just need a bit more time. We'll figure out the right method, the right technique to manage death. And when we try to think about our own death, I think most of us find it hard. We can talk about death in the abstract. We can discuss it theologically and philosophically. But deep down, I think many of us think of it as a thing that happens to other people, not to me. And this is understandable. As far as I can remember, I've been alive. I expect that to just keep going on, if not forever, for a very, very long time. But you and I are going to die. And what's more, pretending we won't, is very bad for us. Today, the church forces us to pay attention to death, and not just death in the abstract, but your death, my death. We prefer to look away, but today, Christ's ministers look us straight in the eye and tell each of us, you are going to die. The church has always been attentive to death, Early Christians appeared to Romans as a burial society. The church's treatment of the dead was one of its most distinctive features. Early Christians gathered for worship and prayer with the dead, quite literally next to the bones of the martyrs and saints. And this preoccupation with death never really went away. Throughout the church's glorious and strange history, Death has been consistently prominent, from catacombs to reliquaries to the preservation of skulls, bones, fingers, and hair, to churchyard cemeteries, to uncorrupted corpses. The history, the architecture, the art of the church is replete with death. Most obviously, we see this in the martyrs, those who bear witness to Christ by sharing in his death. In their lives and deaths, in their very bodies, the martyrs teach us that following Christ means facing down death rather than running away from it. With great clarity, the martyrs remind us that we will not find true life by clinging possessively to life, liberty, and happiness, but by losing our life. 
So today, the church reminds us that we are going to die. And given that situation, we may as well embrace it. Before you die, you should die. In other words, what the church invites us to do today is to consider our own inevitable death and in light of it, to stop living for ourselves. The church invites you and I to repent, to turn away from a life defined by and for me. So just to review, you're going to die. And this should bring about repentance. So far, so good. Let's get on with it. This is the 7 a.m. service. I'm assuming it's not your first rodeo. You've been here before. Let's make our confessions, start our Lenten practices, death, repentance, fasting. Let's go. But if you're like me, and you get a little bit excited about Lent, our readings this morning are a bit troubling. They talk quite a bit about fasting, and mostly what they offer is a long list of warnings. We come in all excited to start Lent, and we hear these readings, and we think, oh no, our problem seems to be much worse than we thought. Because both the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Matthew warn us that our piety can be a facade, that even our fasting, our self-denial, our prayers can be nothing more than a cheap veneer painted over a self-serving life. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord's charge against the Israelites is not that they ignore God or his law. Israel seems to have the right attitude. God's people seem spiritually vibrant. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They fast, they humble themselves. They delight to draw near to God. If all you saw was Israel's worship, Israel's piety, you'd think that God would be quite happy with them. I bet they even remember sometimes to pray Compline. So what's the problem? In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Underneath the piety is festering greed, oppression, violence. The problem is that Israel didn't believe they had to choose between God and everything else they wanted out of life. And the prophet is uncomfortably clear about this. If our fasting does not go hand in hand with regard for the needy, the oppressed, the homeless, the refugee, God finds it unacceptable. We don't have righteousness. We have death. Now remember, you and I are going to die. And since we're going to die someday, one of the things that needs to die in the meantime is the notion that we can do all the spiritually right things while disregarding those in need. What needs to die is any already dead religiosity that fits comfortably with a self-serving life. And the church has always known this. In the early church, fasting was frequently connected with almsgiving. When early Christians encountered the hungry, they fasted. They gave their lunch away. 
They went without to feed the poor. And this is why the church today invites us during Lent to take up not only fasting, but also almsgiving. Again, you're the 7 a.m. crowd, so you already know this. And you're probably feeling good about this still. Thanks, Isaiah, but our Lenten plans already included almsgiving. Thank you very much. And then we get to our gospel reading. It gets worse. Here we are on the first day of Lent, and we hope to do better than Israel. We will think of others. We'll pay attention to how our own consumption might contribute to exploitation or injustice. We might get a bit of, give a bit of money. We might even volunteer some time. But as Christ teaches his disciples, even in this, we might go wrong. The hypocrites give and sound a trumpet in the streets that they may be praised by others. Christ uncovers a deeply troubling truth. Even our good works, which are good, can be self-serving. They can be just for show. They can be all about me. The terrible news is that even our charity can be one more way of us getting what we want out of life. Now, of course, the answer is not throw your hands in the air, you know, and quit. We can't let fear of hypocrisy keep us from prayer, from fasting, from almsgiving. That's exactly what our enemy would like us to do. Instead, Christ has simple words for us. Don't do it that way. Do it this way instead. Give, pray, fast. The essential difference is, are these practices aimed at us being recognized as successful Christians? Or are they done in a way that, according to the logic of this world, makes no sense? Are they done in a way that doesn't compute in this worldly terms? And the difference is surprisingly easy to tell. Do I need other people to know? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. If that's the payoff, if that's the goal, then it's really still all about me. I have my reward. But if nobody knows, it does me no good, at least in this world. I think the importance of secrecy is part of why it's helpful to be part of a church that gives us guidance on Lent. The church tells us to keep it simple and listen to Jesus. Fast, pray, give. None of us do anything particularly heroic when we try to obey this. And the fact that we're in it together allows us to be in solidarity, to share in practices that, let's be honest, are sometimes not easy, but without needing to broadcast them. Our common rule, our common practice, preserves both solidarity and secrecy, which is essential to this being beneficial at all. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. But even with this help, even with solidarity and good intentions, when we come to the end of these 40 days, we won't find ourselves gathered around, congratulating each other on our successful Lent. Nobody ever gets to Holy Week and rightly thinks, I really did Lent right. I crushed it. 
because you and I are going to die. And all of our effort, even our piety, even our good works, our sacrifice for others, will not prevent this. Our hope is not that we finally succeed at Lent, but that in these 40 days we come close to the one who did. Christ, who went into the wilderness for 40 days, did what Israel could not do. With his passion and death in mind, Christ faced down the worst temptations of the enemy and triumphed. Christ resisted the temptation to sate his hunger, the temptation to flaunt his power through spectacular deeds, the temptation to grasp at worldly glory. So today the invitation of the church is to be like Christ, to anticipate our death, to set it before us. You and I are going to die. Knowing this, we repent and get on with the business of dying. We die to the false notion that we can follow Christ to the cross and still get what we want out of life. We die to a life of religiosity that ignores those in need, those whom Christ identifies with. We die to the temptation to practice piety and charity so others will notice and think well of us. My prayer for you and I this Lent is that we stay with Christ in the wilderness, meeting him in prayer, deepening our hunger for him, and fasting, seeing him in the face of the poor. And time and again, as we try and fail to pick up our cross daily, may we fall on the mercy of the one who triumphed. May we respond to Christ's invitation, follow him through his death, and share in his resurrection life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.